0: Question 17 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English-Dominican Province. Question 17. Concerning falsity. We next consider falsity. About this four points of inquiry arise, whether falsity exists in things, whether it exists in the sense, whether it exists in the intellect, and concerning the opposition of the true and the false. First article. Whether falsity exists in things. Objection 1. It appears that falsity does not exist in things, for Augustine says, if the true is that which is, it will be concluded that the false exists nowhere, whatever reason may appear to the contrary. Objection 2. Further, false is derived from fallere, to deceive, but things do not deceive, for, as Augustine says, they show nothing but their own species, therefore the false is not found in things. Objection 3. Further, the true is said to exist in things by conformity to the divine intellect, as stated above, but everything, in so far as it exists, imitates God. Therefore everything is true without admixture of falsity, and thus nothing is false. On the contrary, Augustine says, every body is a true body and a false unity, for it imitates unity without being unity. But everything imitates the divine unity, yet falls short of it, Therefore, in all things falsity exists. I answer that, since true and false are opposed, and since opposites stand in relation to the same thing, we must needs seek falsity where primarily we find truth, that is to say, in the intellect. Now, in things neither truth nor falsity exists except in relation to intellect, And since everything is denominated simply by what belongs to it per se, but is denominated relatively by what belongs to it accidentally, a thing indeed may be called false simply when compared with the intellect on which it depends and to which it is compared per se, but may be called false relatively as directed to another intellect to which it is compared accidentally. Now natural things depend on the divine intellect as artificial things on the human wherefore artificial things are said to be false simply and in themselves in so far as they fall short of the form of the art whence a craftsman is said to produce a false work if it falls short of the proper operation of his art in things that depend on god falseness cannot be found in so far as they are compared with the divine intellect since whatever takes place in things proceeds from the ordinance of that intellect, unless perhaps in the case of voluntary agents only who have it in their power to withdraw themselves from what is so ordained, wherein consists the evil of sin. Thus, sins themselves are called untruths and lies in the scriptures. According to the words of the text, why do you love vanity and seek after lying? As On the other hand, virtuous deeds are called the truth of life as being obedient to the order of the divine intellect. Thus it is said, he that doth truth cometh to the light. But in relation to our intellect, natural things which are compared thereto accidentally can be called false, not simply but relatively, and that in two ways. In one way, according to the thing signified, and thus the thing is said to be false as being signified or represented by word or thought that is false, in this respect anything can be said to be false as regards any quality not possessed by it, as if we should say that a diameter is a false commensurable thing, as the philosopher says. So too, Augustine says, the true tragedian is a false hector, even as, on the contrary, anything can be called true in regard to that which is becoming to it. In another way, a thing can be called false by way of cause, and thus a thing is said to be false that naturally begets a false opinion. And whereas it is innate in us to judge things by external appearance, since our knowledge takes its rise from senses, which principally and naturally deals with external accidents, Therefore, those external accidents, which resemble things other than themselves, are said to be false with respect to those things. Thus gall is falsely honey, and tin false gold. Regarding this, Augustine says, we call those things false that appear to our apprehension like the true. And the philosopher says, things are called false that are naturally apt to appear such as they are not or what they are not. In this way a man is called false, as delighting in false opinions or words, and not because he can invent them, for in this way many wise and learned persons might be called false, as stated in the metaphysics. Reply to Objection 1. A thing compared with the intellect is said to be true in respect to what it is, and false in respect to what it is not, hence the true tragedian is a false Hector, as stated in the soliloquies. As therefore in things that are is found a certain non-being, so in things that are is found a degree of falseness. Reply to Objection 2. Things do not deceive by their own nature, but by accident, for they give occasion to falsity by the likeness they bear to things which they are actually not. Reply to Objection 3. Things are said to be false not as compared with the divine intellect, in which case they would be false simply, but as compared with our intellect, and thus they are false only relatively. To the argument which is urged on the contrary, likeness or defective representation does not involve the idea of falsity except in so far as it gives occasion to false opinion. Hence, a thing is not always said to be false because it resembles another thing, but only when the resemblance is such as naturally to produce a false opinion, not in any one case, but in the majority of instances. Second article, whether there is falsity in the senses. Objection 1. It seems that falsity is not in the senses, for Augustine says, If all the bodily senses report as they are affected, I do not know what more we can require from them. Thus it seems that we are not deceived by the senses, and therefore that falsity is not in them. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher says that falsity is not proper to the senses, but to the imagination. Objection 3. Further, in non-complex things there is neither true nor false, but in complex things only. But affirmation and negation do not belong to the senses. Therefore, in the senses, there is no falsity. On the contrary, Augustine says, it appears that the senses entrap us into error by their deceptive similitudes. I answer that falsity is not to be sought in the senses except as truth is in them. Now, truth is not in them in such a way as that the senses know truth, but insofar as they apprehend sensible things truly, as said above. And this takes place through the senses apprehending things as they are, and hence it happens that falsity exists in the senses through their apprehending or judging things to be otherwise than they really are. The knowledge of things by the senses is in proportion to the existence of their likeness in the senses, and the likeness of a thing can exist in the senses in three ways in the first way primarily and of its own nature, as in sight there is the likeness of colors and of other sensible objects proper to it. Secondly, of its own nature though not primarily, as in sight there is the likeness of shape, size, and of other sensible objects common to more than one sense. Thirdly, neither primarily nor of its own nature, but accidentally, as in sight there is the likeness of a man, not as man, but in so far as it is accidental to the colored object to be a man. Sense then has no false knowledge about its proper objects, except accidentally and rarely, and then because of the unsound organ it does not receive the sensible form rightly, just as other passive subjects, because of their indisposition, receive defectively the impressions of the agent. Hence, for instance, it happens that, on account of an unhealthy tongue, sweet seems bitter to a sick person. But as to common objects of sense and accidental objects, even a rightly disposed sense may have a false judgment because it is referred to them not directly but accidentally or as a consequence of being directed to other things. Reply to Objection 1. The affections of sense is its sensation itself. Hence, from the fact that sense reports as it is affected, it follows that we are not deceived in the judgment by which we judge that we experience sensation. Since, however, sense is sometimes affected erroneously of that object, it follows that it sometimes reports erroneously of that object, and thus we are deceived by sense about the object, but not about the fact of sensation. Reply to Objection 2. Falsity is said not to be proper to sense, since sense is not deceived as to its proper object. Hence, in another translation, it is said more plainly, sense about its proper object is never false. Falsity is attributed to the imagination as it represents the likeness of something even in its absence. Hence, when anyone perceives the likeness of a thing as if it were the thing itself, Falsity results from such an apprehension, and for this reason the philosopher says that shadows, pictures, and dreams are said to be false inasmuch as as they convey the likeness of things that are not present in substance. Reply to Objection 3. This argument proves that the false is not in the sense as in that which knows the true and the false. Third article, whether falsity is in the intellect. Objection one. It seems that falsity is not in the intellect, for Augustine says, Everyone who is deceived understands not that in which he is deceived. But falsity is said to exist in any knowledge in so far as we are deceived therein. Therefore falsity does not exist in the intellect. Objection two. Further, the philosopher says that the intellect is always right. Therefore there is no falsity in the intellect. On the contrary, it is said in De Anima that where there is composition of objects understood, there is truth and falsehood. But such composition is in the intellect, therefore truth and falsehood exist in the intellect. I answer that just as a thing has being by its proper form, so the knowing faculty has knowledge by the likeness of the thing known. Hence, as natural things cannot fall short of the being that belongs to them by their form, but may fall short of accidental or consequent qualities, even as a man may fail to possess two feet, but not fail to be a man. So the faculty of knowing cannot fail in knowledge of the thing with the likeness of which it is informed, but may fail with regard to something consequent upon that form, or accidental thereto. For it has been said that sight is not deceived in its proper sensible but about common sensibles that are consequent to that object or about accidental objects of sense. Now, as the sense is directly informed by the likeness of its proper object, so is the intellect by the likeness of the essence of a thing. Hence, the intellect is not deceived about the essence of a thing as neither the sense about its proper object. But in affirming and denying The intellect may be deceived by attributing to the thing of which it understands the essence something which is not consequent upon it or is opposed to it. For the intellect is in the same position as regards judging of such things as sense is as to judging of common or accidental sensible objects. There is, however, this difference as before mentioned regarding truth, that falsity can exist in the intellect not only because the knowledge of the intellect is false, but because the intellect is conscious of that knowledge as it is conscious of truth, whereas, in sense, falsity does not exist as known as stated above. But because falsity of the intellect is concerned essentially only with the composition of the intellect, falsity occurs also accidentally in that operation of the intellect, whereby it knows the essence of a thing, in so far as composition of the intellect is mixed up in it. This can take place in two ways, in one way by the intellect applying to one thing the definition proper to another, as that of a circle to a man, wherefore the definition of one thing is false of another in another way by composing a definition of parts which are mutually exclusive for thus the definition is not only false of the thing but false in itself a definition such as a reasonable four-footed animal would be of this kind and the intellect false in making it for such a statement as some reasonable animals are four-footed is false in itself for this reason the intellect cannot be false in its knowledge of simple essences but it is either true or it understands nothing at all. Reply to Objection 1. Because the essence of a thing is the proper object of the intellect, we are properly said to understand a thing when we reduce it to its essence and judge of it thereby as takes place in demonstrations in which there is no falsity. In this sense, Augustine's words must be understood that he who is deceived understands not that wherein he is deceived, and not in the sense that no one is ever deceived in any operation of the intellect. Reply to objection to, the intellect is always right as regards first principles, since it is not deceived about them, for the same reason that it is not deceived about what a thing is for self-known principles are such as are known as soon as the terms are understood from the fact that the predicate is contained in the definition of the subject fourth article whether true and false are contraries objection one it seems that true and false are not contraries for true and false are opposed as that which is to that which is not for truth as augustine says is that which is But that which is and that which is not are not opposed as contraries, therefore true and false are not contrary things. Objection 2. Further, one of two contraries is not in the other, but falsity is in truth because, as Augustine says, a tragedian would not be a false Hector if he were not a true tragedian. Therefore true and false are not contraries. Objection 3. Further, in God there is no contrariety, for nothing is contrary to the divine substance, as Augustine says. But falsity is opposed to God, for an idol is called in Scripture a lie. They have laid hold on lying, that is, to say, an idol, as a gloss says. Therefore, false and true are not contraries. On the contrary, the philosopher says that a false opinion is contrary to a true one. I answer that true and false are opposed as contraries and not, as some have said, as affirmation and negation, in proof of which it must be considered that negation neither asserts anything nor determines any subject and can therefore be said of being as of not being, for instance, not seeing or not sitting. But privation asserts nothing, whereas it determines its subject, for it is negation in a subject, as stated in metaphysics, for blindness is not said except of one whose nature it is to see. Contraries, however, both assert something and determine the subject, for blackness is a species of color. Falsity asserts something, for a thing is false, as the philosopher says, inasmuch as something is said or seems to be something that it is not or not to be what it really is. For as truth implies an adequate apprehension of a thing, so falsity implies the contrary, hence it is clear that true and false are contraries. Reply to Objection 1. What is in things is the truth of the thing, but what is apprehended is the truth of the intellect wherein truth primarily resides. Hence the false is that which is not as apprehended. To apprehend being and not being implies contrariety, for as the philosopher proves, the contrary of this statement, God is good, is God is not good. Reply to objection to, falsity is not founded in the truth which is contrary to it, just as evil is not founded in the good which is contrary to it, but in that which is its proper subject. This happens in either because true and good are universals and convertible with being, Hence, as every privation is founded in a subject, that is, a being, so every evil is founded in some good and every falsity in some truth. Reply to Objection 3. Because contraries and opposites by way of privation are by nature about one and the same thing, therefore there is nothing contrary to God considered in himself, either with respect to his goodness or his truth, for in his intellect there can be nothing false." But in our apprehension of him, contraries exist, for the false opinion concerning him is contrary to the true. So idols are called lies opposed to the divine truth, inasmuch as the false opinion concerning them is contrary to the true opinion of the divine unity. The end of question 17. Question 18 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas translated by the fathers of the English Dominican province. Question 18, the life of God. Since to understand belongs to living beings, after considering the divine knowledge and intellect, we must consider the divine life. About this, four points of inquiry arise. To whom does it belong to live? What is life? Whether life is properly attributed to God and whether all things in God are life. First article, whether to live belongs to all natural things. Objection one, it seems that to live belongs to all natural things, for the philosopher says that movement is like a kind of life possessed by all things existing in nature, but all natural things participate in movement, therefore all natural things partake of life. Objection to further plants are said to live inasmuch as they have in themselves a principle of movement, of growth, and decay. But local movement is naturally more perfect than and prior to movement of growth and decay, as the philosopher shows. Since then all natural bodies have in themselves some principle of local movement, it seems that all natural bodies live objection three further amongst natural bodies the elements are the less perfect yet life is attributed to them for we speak of living waters much more therefore have other natural bodies life on the contrary dionysius says the last echo of life is heard in the plants whereby it is inferred that their life is life in the lowest degree but inanimate bodies are inferior to plants Therefore, they have not life. I answer that we can gather to what things life belongs and to what it does not from such things as manifestly possess life. Now, life manifestly belongs to animals, for it is said in De Vegetabilis that in animals life is manifest. We must therefore distinguish living from lifeless things by comparing them to that by reason of which animals are said to live, and this it is in which life is manifested first and remains last. We say then that an animal begins to live when it begins to move of itself, and as long as such movement appears in it, so long as it is considered to be alive. When it, is no, when it no longer has any movement of itself, but is only moved by another power, then its life is said to fail and the animal to be dead. Whereby it is clear that those things are properly called living that move themselves by some kind of movement, whether it be movement properly so called as the act of an imperfect being, that is, of a thing in potentiality, is called movement, or movement in a more general sense, as when said of the act of a perfect thing, as understanding and feeling are called movement. Accordingly, all things are said to be alive that determine themselves to movement or operation of any kind, whereas those things that cannot by their nature do so cannot be called living unless by a similitude. Reply to Objection 1. These words of the philosopher may be understood either of the first movement, namely that of the celestial bodies, or of the movement in its general sense. In either way is movement called the life, as it were, of natural bodies, speaking by a similitude and not attributing it to them as their property. The movement of the heavens is in the universe of corporeal natures, as the movement of the heart, whereby life is preserved, is in animals. Similarly, also, every natural movement in respect to natural things has a certain similitude to the operations of life. Hence, if the whole corporeal universe were one animal so that its movement came from an intrinsic moving force, as some, in fact, have held, in that case movement would really be the life of all natural bodies. Reply to Objection 2 Two bodies, whether heavy or light, movement does not belong except in so far as they are displaced from their natural conditions and are out of their proper place for when they are in the place that is proper and natural to them they are at rest plants and other living things move with vital movement in accordance with the disposition of their nature but not by approaching thereto or by receding from it for in so far as they recede from such movement, so far do they recede from their natural disposition. Heavy and light bodies are moved by an extrinsic force, either generating them and giving them form, or removing obstacles from their way. They do not, therefore, move themselves as do living bodies. Reply to objection three. Waters are called living that have a continuous current, for standing waters that are not connected with a continually flowing source are called dead, as in cisterns and ponds. This is merely a similitude, inasmuch as the movement they are seen to possess makes them look as if they were alive. Yet this is not life in them in its real sense, since this movement of theirs is not from themselves, but from the cause that generates them. The same is the case with the movement of other heavy and light bodies. Second article, whether life is an operation. Objection 1. It seems that life is an operation, for nothing is divided except into parts of the same genus. But life is divided by certain operations, as is clear from the philosopher who distinguishes four kinds of life, namely nourishment, sensation, local movement, and understanding. Therefore life is an operation objection to further the active life is said to be different from the contemplative but the contemplative is only distinguished from the active by certain operations therefore life is an operation objection three further to know God is an operation but this is life as is clear from the words of John now this is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God therefore life is an operation On the contrary, the philosopher says in living things, to live is to be. I answer that, as is clear from what has been said, our intellect, which takes cognizance of the essence of a thing as its proper object, gains knowledge from sense of which the proper objects are external accidents. Hence from external appearances we come to the knowledge of the essence of things, and because we name a thing in accordance with our knowledge of it, as is clear from what has been already said, so from external properties names are often imposed to signify essences. Hence such names are sometimes taken strictly to denote the essence itself, the signification of which is their principal object but sometimes, and less strictly, to denote the properties by reason of which they are imposed. And so we see that the word body is used to denote a genus of substances from the fact of their possessing three dimensions, and is sometimes taken to denote the dimensions themselves, in which sense body is said to be a species of quantity. The same must be said of life. The name is given from a certain external appearance, namely self-movement, yet not precisely to signify this, but rather a substance to which self-movement and the application of itself to any kind of operation belongs naturally. To live, accordingly, is nothing else than to exist in this or that nature, and life signifies this, though in the abstract, just as the word running denotes to run in the abstract. Hence living is not an accidental but an essential predicate. Sometimes, however, life is used less properly for the operations from which its name is taken, and thus the philosopher says that to live is principally to sense or to understand. Reply to objection one, the philosopher here takes to live to mean an operation of life, Or it would be better to say that sensation and intelligence and the like are sometimes taken for the operations, sometimes for the existence itself of the operator. For he says that to live is to sense or to understand, in other words, to have a nature capable of sensation or understanding. Thus, then, he distinguishes life from the four operations mentioned, for in this lower world there are four kinds of living things. It is the nature of some to be capable of nothing more than taking nourishment and as a consequence of growing and generating. Others are able in addition to sense, as we see in the case of shellfish and other animals without movement. Others have the further power of moving from place to place as perfect animals such as quadrupeds and birds and so on. Others, as man, have the still higher faculty of understanding." Reply to objection to. By vital operations are meant those whose principles are within the operator and in virtue of which the operator produces such operations of itself. It happens that there exist in men not merely such natural principles of certain operations as are their natural powers, but something over and above them such as habits, inclining them like a second nature to particular kinds of operations, so that the operations become sources of pleasure. Thus, as by a similitude, any kind of work in which a man takes delight, so that his bent is towards it, his time spent in it, and his whole life ordered with a view to it, is said to be the life of that man. Hence, some are said to lead a life of self-indulgence, others a life of virtue. In this way, the contemplative life is distinguished from the active, and thus to know God is said to be life eternal. Wherefore the reply to the third objection is clear. Third article whether life is properly attributed to God. Objection one. It seems that life is not properly attributed to God, For things are said to live inasmuch as they move themselves, as previously stated. But movement does not belong to God, therefore neither does life. Objection 2. Further, in all living things we must need suppose some principle of life. Hence it is said by the philosopher that the soul is the cause and principle of the living body. But God has no principle, therefore life cannot be attributed to him. Objection 3. Further, the principle of life in the living things that exist among us is the vegetative soul, but this exists only in corporeal things, therefore life cannot be attributed to incorporeal things. On the contrary, it is said, my heart and my flesh have rejoiced in the living God. I answer that life is the highest degree properly in God in proof of which it must be considered that since a thing is said to live in so far as it operates of itself and not as moved by another the more perfectly this power is found in anything the more perfect is the life of that thing in things that move and are moved a threefold order is found in the first place the end moves the agent and the principal agent is that which acts through its form and sometimes it does so through some instrument that acts by virtue not of its own form, but of the principal agent, and does no more than execute the action. Accordingly, there are things that move themselves, not in respect of any form or end naturally inherent in them, but only in respect of the executing of the movement, the form by which they act, and the end of the action being alike determined for them by their nature of this kind are plants, which move themselves according to their inherent nature, with regard only to executing the movements of growth and decay. Other things have self-movement in a higher degree, that is, not only with regard to executing the movement, but even as regards to the form, the principle of movement, which form they acquire of themselves. Of this kind are animals, in which the principle of movement is not a naturally implanted form, but one received through sense, Hence, the more perfect is their sense, the more perfect is their power of self-movement. Such as have only the sense of touch as shellfish, move only with the motion of expansion and contraction, and thus their movement hardly exceeds that of plants. Whereas such as have the sensitive power in perfection, so as to recognize not only connection and touch but also objects apart from themselves, can move themselves to a distance by progressive movement. Yet although animals of the latter kind receive through sense the form that is the principle of their movement, nevertheless they cannot of themselves propose to themselves the end of their operation or movement. For this has been implanted in them by nature, and by natural instinct they are moved to any action through the form apprehended by sense. And such animals as move themselves in respect to an end they themselves propose are superior to these. This can only be done by reason and intellect whose province it is to know the proportion between the end and the means to that end and and duly coordinate them. Hence a more perfect degree of life is that of intelligent beings for their power of self-movement is more perfect. This is shown by the fact that in one and the same man the intellectual faculty moves the sensitive powers and these by their command move the organs of movement. Thus in the arts we see that the art of using a ship, that is, the art of navigation, rules the art of ship designing, and this in its turn rules the art that is only concerned with preparing the material for the ship. But although our intellect moves itself to some things, yet others are supplied by nature as our first principles, which it cannot doubt, and the last end, which it cannot but will. Hence, although with respect to some things it moves itself, yet with regard to other things it must be moved by another. Wherefore, that being whose act of understanding is its very nature and which, in what it naturally possesses, is not determined by another, must have life in the most perfect degree, such as God, and hence in him principally is life. From this the philosopher concludes, after showing God to be intelligent, that God has life most perfect and eternal, since his intellect is most perfect and always in act. Reply to Objection 1. As stated in the metaphysics, action is twofold. Actions of one kind pass out to external matter as to heat or to cut, whilst actions of the other kind remain in the agent as to understand, to sense, and to will. The difference between them is this— that the former action is the perfection not of the agent that moves, but of the thing moved, whereas the latter action is the perfection of the agent. Hence, because movement is an act of the thing in movement, the latter action, insofar as it is the act of the operator, is called its movement by this similitude, that as movement is an act of the thing moved, so an act of this kind is the act of the agent, although movement is an act of the imperfect, that is, of what is in potentiality while this kind of act is an act of the perfect, that is to say, of what is in act, as stated in Anima. In the sense, therefore, in which understanding is movement, that which understands itself is said to move itself, it is in this sense that Plato also taught that God moves himself, not in the sense in which movement is an act of the imperfect. Reply to objection two: As God is his own very existence and understanding, So is he his own life, and therefore he so lives that he has no principle of life. Reply to Objection 3. Life in this lower world is bestowed on a corruptible nature that needs generation to preserve the species and nourishment to preserve the individual. For this reason life is not found here below apart from a vegetative soul, but this does not hold good with incorruptible natures. Fourth article, whether all things are life in God. Objection one, it seems that not all things are life in God, for it is said, in him we live and move and be, but not all things in God are movement, therefore not all things are life in him. Objection two, further all things are in God as their first model, but things modeled ought to conform to the model. Since then not all things have life in themselves, it seems that not all things are life in God. Objection 3. Further, as Augustine says, a living substance is better than a substance that does not live. If, therefore, things which in themselves have not life are life in God, it seems that things exist more truly in God than themselves. But this appears to be false, since in themselves they exist actually, but in God potentially. Objection 4. Further, just as good things and things made in time are known by God, so are bad things and things that God can make, but that will never be made. If, therefore, all things are life in God, inasmuch as known by Him, it seems that even bad things and things that will never be made are life in God, as known by Him, and this appears inadmissible. On the contrary, it is said, what was made... In him was life, but all things were made except God. Therefore, all things are life in God. I answer that in God to live is to understand as before stated. In God, intellect, the thing understood, and the act of understanding are one and the same. Hence, whatever is in God as understood is the very living or life of God. Now, wherefore, since all things that have been made by God are in him as things understood, it follows that all things in him are the divine life itself. Reply to objection one, creatures are said to be in God in a twofold sense, in one way so far as they are held together and preserved by the divine power, even as we say that things that are in our power are in us and creatures are thus said to be in God even as they exist in their own natures. In this sense, we must understand the words of the Apostle when he says, In him we live, move, and be, since our being, and living, and moving are themselves caused by God. In another sense, things are said to be in God as in him who knows them, in which sense they are in God through their proper ideas, which in God are not distinct from the divine essence. Hence, things as they are in God are the divine essence, and since the divine essence is life and not movement, it follows that things existing in God in this manner are not movement but life. Reply to objection to the thing modeled must be like the model according to the form, not the mode of being. For sometimes the form has being of another kind in the model from that which it has in the thing modeled. Thus the form of a house has in the mind of the architect immaterial and intelligible being, but in the house that exists outside his mind material and sensible being. Hence the ideas of things, though not existing in themselves, are life in the divine mind as having a divine existence in that mind. Reply to Objection 3, if form only and not matter belong to natural things, then in all respects natural things would exist more truly in the divine mind by the ideas of them than in themselves, for which reason, in fact, Plato held that the separate man was the true man and that man as he exists in matter is man only by participation." But since matter enters into the being of natural things, we must say that those things have simply being in the divine mind more truly than in themselves, because in that mind they have an uncreated being, but in themselves a created being. Whereas this particular being, a man or horse, for example, has this being more truly in its own nature than in the divine mind, because it belongs to human nature to be material, which as existing in the divine mind, it is not. Even so, a house has nobler being in the architect's mind than in matter, yet a material house is called a house more truly than the one which exists in the mind, since the former is actual, the latter only potential. Reply to objection for, although bad things are in God's knowledge as being comprised under that knowledge yet they are not in God as created by him or preserved by him or as having their type in him. They are known by God through the types of good things. Hence it cannot be said that bad things are life in God. Those things that are not in time may be called life in God insofar as life means understanding only, and inasmuch as they are understood by God, but not insofar as life implies a principle of operation." End of question 18. Question 19 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 19. The Will of God. After considering the things belonging to the divine knowledge, we consider what belongs to the divine will. The first consideration is about the divine will itself, the second about what belongs strictly to his will, The third, about what belongs to the intellect in relation to his will. About his will itself, there are twelve points of inquiry. First, whether there is will in God. Second, whether God wills things apart from himself. Third, whether whatever God wills, he wills necessarily. Fourth, whether the will of God is the cause of things. Fifth, whether any cause can be assigned to the divine will. Sixth, whether the divine will is always fulfilled. Seventh, whether the will of God is mutable. Eighth, whether the will of God imposes necessity on the things willed. Ninth, whether there is in God the will of evil. Tenth, whether God has free will. Eleventh, whether the will of expression is distinguished in God. And twelfth, whether five expressions of will are rightly assigned to the divine will. First article, whether there is will in God. Objection 1. It seems that there is not will in God, for the object of will is the end and the good, but we cannot assign to God any end, therefore there is not will in God objection to further will is a kind of appetite but appetite as it is directed to things not possessed implies imperfection which cannot be imputed to god therefore there is not will in god objection three further according to the philosopher the will moves and is moved but god is the first cause of movement and himself is unmoved as proved in physics therefore there is not will in god On the contrary, the apostle says that you may prove what is the will of God. I answer that there is will in God as there is intellect since will follows upon intellect. For as natural things have actual existence by their form so the intellect is actually intelligent by its intelligible form. Now everything has this aptitude towards its natural form that when it has it not it tends towards it and when it has it It is at rest therein. It is the same with every natural perfection, which is a natural good. This aptitude to good in things without knowledge is called natural appetite, whence also intellectual natures have a like aptitude as apprehended through its intelligible form, so as to rest therein when possessed and when not possessed to seek to possess it, both of which pertain to the will." Hence in every intellectual being there is will, just as in every sensible being there is animal appetite. And so there must be will in God, since there is intellect in Him. And as His will is His own existence, so is His will. Reply to Objection 2. Although nothing apart from God is His end, yet He Himself is the end with respect to all things made by Him. And this by his essence for by his essence he is good as shown above for the end has the aspect of good reply to objection to will in us belongs to the appetitive part which although named from appetite has not for its only act the seeking what it does not possess but also the loving and the delighting in what it does possess in this respect will is said to be in god as having always good, which is its object, since, as already said, it is not distinct from his essence. Reply to Objection 3. A will, of which the principal object is a good outside itself, must be moved by another. But the object of the divine will is his goodness, which is his essence, and since the will of God is his essence, it is not moved by another than itself, but by itself alone, in the same sense as understanding and willing are said to be movement. This is what Plato meant when he said that the first mover moves itself. Second article, whether God wills things apart from himself. Objection one, it seems that God does not will things apart from himself, for the divine will is the divine existence. But God is not other than himself, therefore he does not will things other than himself. Objection to further, the willed moves the willer, as the appetible the appetite, as stated in De anima. If therefore God wills anything apart from himself, his will must be moved by another, which is impossible. Objection three further, if what is willed suffices the willer, he seeks nothing beyond it. But his own goodness suffices God and completely satisfies his will. Therefore God does not will anything apart from himself. Objection 4. Further, acts of will are multiplied in proportion to the number of their objects. If, therefore, God wills himself and things apart from himself, it follows that the act of his will is manifold, and consequently his existence, which is his will. But this is impossible. Therefore, God does not will things apart from himself. On the contrary, the apostle says, This is the will of God your sanctification i answer that god wills not only himself but other things apart from himself this is clear from the comparison which we made above for natural things have a natural inclination not only towards their own proper good to acquire it if it is not possessed and if possessed to rest therein but also to spread abroad their own good amongst others so far as possible Hence we see that every agent, in so far as it is perfect and in act, produces its like. It pertains, therefore, to the nature of the will to communicate, as far as possible, to others the good possessed. And especially does this pertain to the divine will, from which all perfection is derived in some kind of likeness. Hence if natural things, in so far as they are perfect, communicate their good to others, much more does it appertain to the divine will to communicate by likeness its own good to others as much as possible. Thus, then, he wills both himself to be and other things to be, but himself as the end and other things as ordained to that end inasmuch as it befits the divine goodness that other things should be partakers therein. Reply to Objection 1. The divine will is God's own existence essentially, yet they differ in aspect according to the different ways of understanding them and expressing them as is clear from what has already been said. For when we say that God exists, no relation to any other object is implied, as we do imply when we say that God wills. Therefore, although he is not anything apart from himself, yet he does will things apart from himself. Reply to Objection 2 In things willed for the sake of the end, the whole reason for our being moved is the end, and this it is that moves the will, as most clearly appears in things willed only for the sake of the end. He who wills to take a bitter draft in doing so wills nothing else than health, and this alone moves his will. It is different with one who takes a draft that is pleasant, which any one may will to do not only for the sake of health but also for its own sake. Hence, although God wills things apart from himself only for the sake of the end, which is his own goodness, it does not follow that anything else moves his will except his goodness. So, as he understands things apart from himself by understanding his own essence, so he wills things apart from himself by willing his own goodness. Reply to Objection 3. From the fact that his own goodness suffices, the divine will— it does not follow that it wills nothing apart from itself, but rather that it wills nothing except by reason of its goodness. Thus, too, the divine intellect, though its perfection consists in its very knowledge of the divine essence, yet in that essence knows other things. Reply to objection for, as the divine intellect is one and seeing the many only in the one, in the same way, the divine will is one and simple, as willing the many only through the one, that is, through its own goodness. Third article, whether whatever God wills, he wills necessarily. Objection one. It seems that whatever God wills, he wills necessarily, for everything eternal is necessary. But whatever God wills, he wills from eternity, for otherwise his will would be mutable. Therefore, whatever he wills, he wills necessarily. Objection 2. Further, God wills things apart from himself, inasmuch as as he wills his own goodness. Now God wills his own goodness necessarily. Therefore, he wills things apart from himself necessarily. Objection 3. Further, whatever belongs to the nature of God is necessary, for God is of himself necessary being, and the principle of all necessity as above shown but it belongs to his nature to will whatever he wills. Since in God there can be nothing over and above his nature, as stated in metaphysics, therefore whatever he wills, he wills necessarily. Objection 4. Further, being that is not necessary and being that is possible not to be are one and the same thing. If therefore God does not necessarily will a thing that he wills, it is possible for him not to will it, and therefore possible for him to will what he does not will. And so the divine will is contingent upon one or the other of two things, and imperfect, since everything contingent is imperfect and mutable objection five further on the part of that which is indifferent to one or the other of two things no action results unless it is inclined to one or the other by some other power as the commentator says in the physics if then the will of god is indifferent with regard to anything it follows that his determination to act comes from another and thus he has some cause prior to himself Objection 6. Further, whatever God knows, he knows necessarily. But as the divine knowledge is his essence, so is the divine will. Therefore, whatever God wills, he wills necessarily. On the contrary, the apostle says, Who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will? Now, what we work according to the counsel of the will, we do not will necessarily Therefore, God does not will necessarily whatever he wills. I answer that. There are two ways in which a thing is said to be necessary, namely absolutely and by supposition. We judge a thing to be absolutely necessary from the relation of the terms as when the predicate forms part of the definition of the subject, thus it is absolutely necessary that man is an animal. It is the same when the subject forms part of the notion of the predicate, thus it is absolutely necessary that a number must be odd or even. In this way it is not necessary that Socrates sits, wherefore it is not necessary absolutely, though it may be so by supposition. For granted that he is sitting, he must necessarily sit as long as he is sitting. Accordingly. As to things willed by God, we must observe that he wills something of absolute necessity, but this is not true of all that he wills. For the divine will has a necessary relation to the divine goodness, since that is its proper object. Hence God wills his own goodness necessarily, even as we will our own happiness necessarily, and as any other faculty has necessary relation to its proper and principal object— for instance, the sight to color, since it tends to it by its own nature. But God wills things apart from himself, insofar as they are ordered to his own goodness as their end. Now, in willing an end, we do not necessarily will things that conduce to it, unless they are such that the end cannot be attained without them, as we will to take food to preserve life, or to take ship in order to cross the sea. But we do not necessarily will things without which the end is attainable, such as a horse for a journey, which we can take on foot, for we can make the journey without one. The same applies to other means. Hence, since the goodness of God is perfect and can exist without other things, inasmuch as no perfection can accrue to him from them, it follows that his willing things, apart from himself, is not absolutely necessary. Yet it can be necessary by supposition for supposing that he wills a thing, then he is unable not to will it, as his will cannot change. Reply to Objection 1. From the fact that God wills from eternity whatever he wills, it does not follow that he wills it necessarily except by supposition. Reply to Objection 2. Although God necessarily wills his own goodness, he does not necessarily will things willed on account of his goodness, for it can exist without other things. Reply to Objection 3. It is not natural to God to will any of those other things that he does not will necessarily, and yet it is not unnatural or contrary to his nature, but voluntary. Reply to objection for, sometimes a necessary cause has a non-necessary relation to an effect owing to a deficiency in the effect and not in the cause. Even so, the sun's power has a non-necessary relation to some contingent events on this earth owing to a defect not in the solar power but in the effect that proceeds not necessarily from the cause. In the same way that God does not necessarily will some of the things that he wills does not result from defect in the divine will, but from a defect belonging to the nature of the thing willed, namely, that the perfect goodness of God can be without it, and such defect accompanies all created good. Reply to Objection 5. A naturally contingent cause must be determined to act by some external power. The divine will, which by its nature is necessary, determines itself to will things to which it has no necessary relation. Reply to Objection 6, as the divine essence is necessary of itself, so is the divine will and the divine knowledge. But the divine knowledge has a necessary relation to the thing known, not the divine will to the thing willed. The reason for this is that knowledge is of things as they exist in the knower, but the will is directed to things as they exist in themselves since then all other things have necessary existence inasmuch as they exist in God, but no absolute necessity so as to be necessary in themselves so far as they exist in themselves. It follows that God knows necessarily whatever he wills, but does not will necessarily whatever he wills. Fourth article, whether the will of God is the cause of things. Objection 1. It seems that the will of God is not the cause of things, for Dionysius says, As our Son, not by reason or by pre-election, but by its very being, enlightens all things that can participate in its light, so the divine goodness, by its very essence, pours the rays of goodness upon everything that exists. But every voluntary agent acts by reason and pre-election, therefore God does not act by will, and so his will is not the cause of things objection to further the first in any order is that which is essentially so thus in the order burning things that comes first which is fire by its essence but god is the first agent therefore he acts by his essence and that is his nature he acts then by nature and not by will therefore the divine will is not the cause of things objection three further whatever is the cause of anything through being such a thing is the cause by nature and not by will. For fire is the cause of heat as being itself hot, whereas an architect is the cause of a house because he wills to build it. Now Augustine says, because God is good, we exist. Therefore God is the cause of things by his nature and not by his will. Objection 4. Further, of one thing there is one cause. But the cause of created things is the knowledge of God, as said before, Therefore, the will of God cannot be considered the cause of things. On the contrary, it is said, How could anything endure if thou wouldst not? I answer that we must hold that the will of God is the cause of things and that he acts by the will and not, as some have supposed, by a necessity of his nature. This can be shown in three ways, first from the order itself of active causes. Since both intellect and nature act for an end, as proved in physics, the natural agent must have the end and the necessary means predetermined for it by some higher intellect, as the end and definite movement is predetermined for the arrow by the archer. Hence the intellectual and voluntary agent must precede the agent that acts by nature, Hence. Since God is first in the order of agents, he must act by intellect and will. This is shown secondly from the character of a natural agent, of which the property is to produce one and the same effect, for nature operates in one and the same way unless it be prevented. This is because the nature of the act is according to the nature of the agent, and hence as long as it has that nature, its acts will be in accordance with that nature, for every natural agent has a determinate being. Since then the divine being is undetermined and contains in himself the full perfection of being, it cannot be that he acts by a necessity of his nature unless he were to cause something undetermined and indefinite in being, and that this is impossible has been already shown. He does not therefore act by a necessity of his nature, but determined effects proceed from his own infinite perfection according to the determination of his will and intellect. Thirdly, it is shown by the relation of effects to their cause, for effects proceed from the agent that causes them in so far as they pre-exist in the agent, since every agent produces its like. Now effects pre-exist in their cause after the mode of the cause— Wherefore, since the divine being is his own intellect, effects exist in him after the mode of intellect, and therefore proceed from him after the same mode. Consequently, they proceed from him after the mode of will, for his inclination to put in act what his intellect has conceived appertains to the will. Therefore, the will of God is the cause of things." Reply to objection one: Dionysius, in these words, does not intend to exclude election from God absolutely, but only in a certain sense, in so far that is, as he communicates his goodness not merely to certain things but to all, and as election implies a certain distinction. Reply to objection two: Because the essence of God is his intellect and will. From the fact of his acting by his essence, it follows that he acts after the mode of intellect and will. Reply to Objection 3. Good is the object of the will. The words, therefore, because God is good, we exist, are true inasmuch as his goodness is the reason of his willing all other things, as said before. Reply to Objection 4. Even in us the cause of of one and the same effect is knowledge as directing it, whereby the form of the work is conceived and will as commanding it, since the form as it is in the intellect only is not determined to exist or not to exist in the effect except by the will. Hence the speculative intellect has nothing to say to operation, but the power is cause as executing the effect since it denotes the immediate principle of operation, but in God all these things are one. Fifth Article Whether Any Cause Can Be Assigned to the Divine Will Objection 1 It seems that some cause can be assigned to the divine will, for Augustine says, Who would venture to say that God made all things irrationally? But to a voluntary agent, what is the reason of operating is the cause of willing. Therefore the will of God has some cause objection to further in things made by one who wills to make them and whose will is influenced by no cause there can be no cause assigned except by the will of him who wills but the will of god is the cause of all things has been already shown if then there is no cause of his will we cannot seek in any natural things any cause except the divine will alone thus all science would be in vain since science seeks to assign causes to effects This seems inadmissible and therefore we must assign some cause to the divine will. Objection 3. Further, what is done by the willer on account of no cause depends simply on his will. If therefore the will of God has no cause, it follows that all things made depend simply on his will and have no other cause, but this is also not admissible. On the contrary, Augustine says every efficient cause is greater than the thing effected but nothing is greater than the will of God. We must not then seek for a cause of it. I answer that in no wise has the will of God a cause, in proof of which we must consider that since the will follows from the intellect, there is cause of the will in the person who wills, in the same way as there is a cause of the understanding in the person that understands. The case with the understanding is this, that if the premise and its conclusion are understood separately from each other, the understanding the premise is the cause that the conclusion is known. If the understanding perceived the conclusion in the premise itself, apprehending both the one and the other at the same glance, in this case the knowing of the conclusion would not be caused by understanding the premises, since a thing cannot be its own cause, and yet it would be true that the thinker would understand the premises to be the cause of the conclusion." It is the same with the will, with respect to which the end stands in the same relation to the means to the end as do the premises to the conclusion with regard to the understanding. Hence, if any one, in one act wills an end and in another act the means to that end, his willing the end will be the cause of his willing the means. This cannot be the case if in one act he wills both end and means, for a thing cannot be its own cause. Yet it will be true to say that he wills to order to the end the means to the end. Now as God by one act understands all things in his essence, so by one act he wills all things in his goodness. Hence, as in God to understand the cause is not the cause of his understanding the effect, for he understands the effect in the cause, so in him to will an end is not the cause of his willing the means, yet he wills the ordering of the means to the end. Therefore, he wills this to be as means to that, but does not will this on account of that. Reply to objection one: The will of God is reasonable not because anything to God is to God a cause of his willing, but in so far as he wills one thing to be on account of another. Reply to objection two: Since God wills effects to proceed from definite causes. For the preservation of order in the universe, it is not unreasonable to seek for causes secondary to the divine will. It would, however, be unreasonable to do so if such were considered as primary and not as dependent on the will of God. In this sense, Augustine says philosophers in their vanity have thought fit to attribute contingent effects to other causes, being utterly unable to perceive the cause that is shown above all others the will of God. Reply to Objection 3. Since God wills effects to come from causes, all effects that presuppose some other effect do not depend solely on the will of God, but on something else besides. But the first effect depends on the divine will alone. Thus, for example, we may say that God willed man to have hands to serve his intellect by their work and intellect that he might be man and willed him to be man that he might enjoy him or for the completion of the universe but this cannot be reduced to other created secondary ends and such things depend on the simple will of god but the others on the order of other causes sixth article whether the will of god is always fulfilled objection 1 it seems that the will of god is not always fulfilled for the apostle says God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, but this does not happen, therefore the will of God is not always fulfilled. Objection 2. Further, as is the relation of knowledge to truth, so is that of the will to good. Now God knows all truth, therefore he wills all good, but not all good actually exists, for much more good might exist, therefore the will of God is not always fulfilled objection three further since the will of god is the first cause it does not exclude intermediate causes but the effect of a first cause may be hindered by a defect of a secondary cause as the effect of the motive power may be hindered by the weakness of the limb therefore the effect of the divine will may be hindered by a defect of the secondary causes the will of god therefore is not always fulfilled On the contrary, it is said, God hath done all things whatsoever he would. I answer that the will of God must needs always be fulfilled, and proof of which we must consider that since an effect is conformed to the agent according to its form, the rule is the same with active causes as with formal causes. The rule in forms is this, that although a thing may fall short of any particular form, it cannot fall short of the universal form, for though a thing may fail to be, for example, a man or a living being, yet it cannot fail to be a being. Hence the same must happen in active causes. Something may fall outside the order of any particular active cause, but not outside the order of the universal cause, under which all particular causes are included. And if any particular cause fails of its effect, this is because of the hindrance of some other particular cause which is included in the order of the universal cause. Therefore, an effect cannot possibly escape the order of the universal cause. Even in corporeal things this is clearly seen, for it may happen that a star is hindered from producing its effects, yet whatever effect does result in corporeal things from this hindrance of a corporeal cause, must be referred through intermediate causes to the universal influence of the first heaven. Since then the will of God is the universal cause of all things, it is impossible that the divine will should not produce its effect. Hence that which seems to depart from the divine will in one order returns into it in another order, as does the sinner who by sin falls away from the divine will as much as lies in him, yet falls back into the order of that will when by its justice he is punished. Reply to Objection 1 The words of the Apostle, God will have all men to be saved, and so forth, can be understood in three ways. First, by a restricted application, in which case they would mean, as Augustine says, God wills all men to be saved that are saved not because there is no man whom he does not wish saved but because there is no man saved whose salvation he does not will. Secondly, they can be understood as applying to every class of individuals not to every individual in each class in which case they mean that God wills some men of every class and condition to be saved, males and females, Jews and Gentiles, great and small but not all of every condition. Thirdly, according to Damascene, they are understood of the antecedent will of God, not of the consequent will. This distinction must not be taken as applying to the divine will itself, in which there is nothing antecedent nor consequent, but to the things willed. To understand this, we must consider that everything, in so far as it is good, is willed by God. A thing taken in its primary sense and absolutely considered may be good or evil, And yet, when some additional circumstances are taken into account by a consequent consideration, may be changed into the contrary, thus, that a man should live is good, and that a man should be killed is evil, absolutely considered. But if, in a particular case, we add that a man is a murderer or dangerous to society, to kill him is good, that he live is an evil. Hence it may be said of a just judge that antecedently he wills all men to live, but consequently wills the murderer to be hanged. In the same way, God antecedently wills all men to be saved, but consequently wills some to be damned as his justice exacts. Nor do we will simply what we will antecedently, but rather we will it in a qualified manner, for the will is directed to things as they are in themselves, and in themselves they exist under particular qualifications.' Hence we will a thing simply inasmuch as we will it when all particular circumstances are considered. And this is what is meant by willing consequently. Thus it may be said that a just judge wills simply the hanging of a murderer, but in a qualified manner he would will him to live to wit inasmuch as he is a man. Such a qualified will may be called a willingness rather than an absolute will. Thus it is clear that whatever God simply wills takes place, although what he wills antecedently may not take place. Reply to objection to, an act of the cognitive faculty is according as the thing known is in the knower, while an act of the appetite faculty is directed to things as they exist in themselves. But all that can have the nature of being and truth Virtually exists in God, though it does not all exist in created things. Therefore, God knows all truth, but does not will all good, except in so far as He wills Himself, in whom all good virtually exists. Reply to objection three: A first cause can be hindered in its effect by deficiency in the secondary cause when it is not the universal first cause, including within itself all causes, for then the effect could in no way escape its order, and thus it is with the will of God as said above. Seventh article, whether the will of God is changeable. Objection 1. It seems that the will of God is changeable, for the Lord says, It repenteth me that I have made man. But whoever repents of what he has done has a changeable will. Therefore, God has a changeable will. Objection 2. Further, it is said in the person of the Lord, I will speak against a nation and against a kingdom to root out, to pull down, and to destroy it. But if that nation should repent of its evil, I also will repent of the evil that I have thought to do to them. Therefore, God has a changeable will objection three further whatever god does he does voluntarily but god does not always do the same thing for at one time he ordered the law to be observed and at another time forbade it therefore he has a changeable will objection four: further god does not will of necessity what he wills as said before therefore he can both will and not will the same thing but whatever can incline to either of two opposites is changeable substantially and that which can exist in a place or not in that place is changeable locally. Therefore, God is changeable as regards his will. On the contrary, it is said, God is not as a man that he should lie, nor as the Son of Man that he should be changed. I answer that the will of God is entirely unchangeable. On this point, we must consider that to change the will is one thing, To will that certain things should be changed is another. It is possible to will a thing to be done now and its contrary afterwards, and yet for the will to remain permanently the same, whereas the will would be changed if one should begin to will what before he had not willed or cease to will what he had willed before. This cannot happen unless we presuppose change either in the knowledge or in the disposition of the substance of the willer, For since the will regards good, a man may in two ways begin to will a thing. In one way, when that thing begins to be good for him, and this does not take place without a change in him. Thus, when the cold weather begins, it becomes good to sit by the fire, though it was not so before. In another way, when he knows for the first time that a thing is good for him, though he did not know it before, hence we take counsel in order to know what is good for us, Now it has been already shown that both the substance of God and his knowledge are entirely unchangeable, therefore his will must be entirely unchangeable. Reply to Objection 1. These words of the Lord are to be understood metaphorically and according to the likeness of our nature, for when we repent we destroy what we had made, although we may even do so without change of will, as when a man wills to make a thing at the same time intending to destroy it later therefore god is said to have repented by way of comparison with our mode of acting in so far as by the deluge he destroyed from the face of the earth man whom he had made reply to objection 2 the will of god as it is the first and universal cause does not exclude intermediate causes that have power to produce certain effects Since, however, all intermediate causes are inferior in power to the first cause, there are many things in the divine power, knowledge, and will that are not included in the order of inferior causes. Thus, in the case of the raising of Lazarus, one who looked only on inferior causes might have said, Lazarus will not rise again. But looking at the divine first cause might have said, Lazarus will rise again. And God wills both, that is, that in the order of the inferior cause a thing shall happen, but that in the order of the higher cause it shall not happen, or he may will conversely. We may say then that God sometimes declares that a thing shall happen according as it falls under the order of inferior causes, as of nature or merit, which yet does not happen as not being in the designs of the divine and higher cause. Thus he foretold to Ezekiahs, Take order with thy house, for thou shalt die and not live. Yet this did not take place, since from eternity it was otherwise disposed in the divine knowledge and will, which is unchangeable. Hence Gregory says, the sentence of God changes, but not his counsel, that is to say, the counsel of his will. When therefore he says, I also will repent, his words must be understood metaphorically. For men seem to repent when they do not fulfill what they have threatened. Reply to objection three. It does not follow from this argument that God has a will that changes, but that he sometimes wills that things should change. Reply to objection four. Although God's willing a thing is not by absolute necessity, yet it is necessary by supposition on account of the unchangeableness of the divine will as has been said above. Eighth article, whether the will of God imposes necessity on the things willed. Objection 1. It seems that the will of God imposes necessity on the things willed. For Augustine says, no one is saved except whom God has willed to be saved. He must therefore be asked to will it, for if he wills it, it must necessarily be. Objection 2. Further, every cause that cannot be hindered produces its effect necessarily because, as the philosopher says, nature always works in the same way if there is nothing to hinder it. But the will of God cannot be hindered, for the apostle says, who resisteth his will? Therefore, the will of God imposes necessity on the thing's willed. Objection 3. Further, whatever is necessary by its antecedent cause is necessary absolutely. It is thus necessary that animals should die, being compounded of contrary elements. Now things created by God are related to the divine will as to an antecedent cause whereby they have necessity. For the conditional statement is true that if God wills a thing, it comes to pass, and every true conditional statement is necessary. It follows, therefore, that all that God wills is necessary absolutely. On the contrary, all good things that exist, God wills to be. If therefore his will imposes necessity on things willed, it follows that all good happens of necessity, and thus there is an end of free will, counsel, and all other such things. I answer that the divine will imposes necessity on some things willed, but not on all. The reason of this some have chosen to assign to intermediate causes, holding that what God produces by necessary causes is necessary, and what he produces by contingent causes contingent. This does not seem to be a sufficient explanation for two reasons. First, because the effect of a first cause is contingent on account of the secondary cause from the fact that the effect of the first cause is hindered by deficiency in the second cause, as the sun's power is hindered by a defect in the plant. But no defect of a secondary cause can hinder God's will from producing its effect, secondly, because if the distinction between the contingent and the necessary is to be referred only to secondary causes, this must be independent of the divine intention and will which is inadmissible. It is better, therefore, to say that this happens on account of the efficacy of the divine will. For when a cause is efficacious to act, the effect follows upon the cause not only as to the thing done, but also as to its manner of being done or of being. Thus from defect of active power in the seed it may happen that a child is born unlike his father in accidental points that belong to its manner of being, Since then the divine will is perfectly efficacious, it follows not only that things are done which God wills to be done, but also that they are done in the way that he wills. Now God wills some things to be done necessarily, some contingently, to the right ordering of things for the building up of the universe. Therefore to some effects he has attached necessary causes that cannot fail, but to others defectible and contingent causes from which arise contingent effects. Hence it is not because the proximate causes are contingent that the effects willed by God happen contingently, but because God prepared contingent causes for them, it being his will that they should happen contingently. Reply to Objection 1. By the words of Augustine, we must understand a necessity in things willed by God that is not absolute but conditional for the conditional statement that if God wills a thing it must necessarily be is necessarily true. Reply to Objection 2. From the very fact that nothing resists the divine will, it follows that not only those things happen that God wills to happen, but that they happen necessarily or contingently according to his will. Reply to Objection 3. Consequence have necessity from their antecedents according to the mode of the antecedents. Hence, things effected by the divine will have that kind of necessity that God wills them to have, either absolute or conditional. Not all things, therefore, are absolute necessities. Ninth article, whether God wills evils. Objection one, it seems that God wills evils. For every good that exists, God wills, but it is a good that evil should exist. For Augustine says, although evil, in so far as it is evil, is not a good, yet it is good that not only good things should exist, but also evil things. Therefore, God wills evil things. Objection two: Further, Dionysius says, evil would conduce to the perfection of everything that is the universe. And Augustine says, out of all things is built up the admirable beauty of the universe, wherein even that which is called evil, properly ordered and disposed, commends the good more evidently in that good is more pleasing and praiseworthy when contrasted with evil. But God wills all that appertains to the perfection and beauty of the universe, for this is what God desires above all things in his creatures. Therefore God wills evil. Objection 3. Further, that evil should exist and should not exist are contradictory opposites, But God does not will that evil should not exist. Otherwise, since various evils do exist, God's will would not always be fulfilled. Therefore, God wills that evil should exist. On the contrary, Augustine says, no wise man is the cause of another man becoming worse. Now God surpasses all men in wisdom. Much less, therefore, is God the cause of man becoming worse and when he is said to be the cause of a thing, he is said to will it. Therefore, it is not by God's will that man becomes worse. Now, it is clear that every evil makes a thing worse. Therefore, God wills not evil things. I answer that since the ratio of good is the ratio of appetibility, as said before. And since evil is opposed to good, it is impossible that any evil as such should be sought for by the appetite, either natural or animal or by the intellectual appetite which is the will. Nevertheless, evil may be sought accidentally so far as it accompanies a good, as appears in each of the appetites. For a natural agent intends not privation or corruption, but the form to which is annexed the privation of some other form, and the generation of one thing, which implies the corruption of another. Also, when a lion kills a stag, his object is food to obtain which the killing of the animal is the only is only the means similarly the fornicator has merely pleasure for his object and the deformity of sin is only an accompaniment now the evil that accompanies one good is the privation of another good never therefore would evil be sought after nor even accidentally unless the good that accompanies the evil were more desired than the good of which the evil is the privation now God wills no good more than His wills his own goodness, yet he wills one good more than another. Hence he in no way wills the evil of sin, which is the privation of right order towards the divine good. The evil of natural defect or of punishment he does will by willing the good to which such evils are attached. Thus in willing justice he wills punishment, and in willing the preservation of the natural order he wills some things to be naturally corrupted. Reply to Objection 1, Some have said that although God does not will evil, yet he wills that evil should be or be done, because although evil is not a good, yet it is good that evil should be or should be done. This they said because things evil in themselves are ordered to some good end, and this order they thought was expressed in the words that evil should be or be done. This, however, is not correct since evil is not of itself ordered to good but accidentally for it is beside the intention of the sinner that any good should follow from his sin as it was beside the intention of tyrants that the patience of the martyr should shine forth from all their persecutions It cannot therefore be said that such an ordering to good is implied in the statement that it is a good thing that evil should be or be done, since nothing is judged of by that which appertains to it accidentally, but by that which belongs to it essentially. Reply to Objection 2 Evil does not operate towards the perfection and beauty of the universe except accidentally, as said above. Therefore, Dionysius, in saying that evil would conduce to the perfection of the universe, draws a conclusion by reduction to an absurdity. Reply to Objection 3. The statements that evil exists and that evil exists not are opposed as contradictories. Yet the statements that anyone wills evil to exist and that he wills it not to be, are not so opposed, since either is affirmative. God, therefore, neither wills evil to be done nor wills it not to be done, but wills to permit evil to be done, and this is a good. Tenth article, Whether God Has Free Will Objection 1. It seems that God has not free will, for Jerome says in a homily on the prodigal son, God alone is he, who is not liable to sin, nor can be liable. All others, as having free will, can be inclined to either side. Objection 2. Further, free will is the faculty of the reason and will by which good and evil are chosen, but God does not will evil, as has been said, therefore there is not free will in God. On the contrary, Ambrose says, the Holy Spirit divideth unto each one as he will, namely according to the free choice of the will, not in obedience to necessity. I answer that we have free will with respect to what we will not of necessity nor by natural instinct. For our will to be happy does not appertain to free will but to natural instinct. Hence other animals that are moved to act by natural instinct are not said to be moved by free will. Since then God necessarily wills his own goodness but other things not necessarily as shown above He has free will with respect to what he does not necessarily will. Reply to Objection 1. Jerome seems to deny free will to God not simply, but only as regards the inclination to sin. Reply to Objection 2. Since the evil of sin consists in turning away from the divine goodness by which God wills all things, as shown above, it is manifestly impossible for him to will the evil of sin, Yet he can make choice of one of two opposites inasmuch as he can will a thing to be or not to be. In the same way, we ourselves without sin can will to sit down and not will to sit down. Eleventh article, Whether the Will of Expression is to be Distinguished in God Objection one, it seems that the will of expression is not to be distinguished in God. For as the will of God is the cause of things, so is his wisdom. But no expressions are assigned to the divine wisdom. Therefore no expressions ought to be assigned to the divine will. Objection 2. Further, every expression that is not in agreement with the mind of him who expresses himself is false. If, therefore, the expressions assigned to the divine will are not in agreement with that will, they are false. But if they do agree, they are superfluous. No expressions, therefore, must be assigned to the divine will. On the contrary, the will of God is one, since it is the very essence of God. Yet sometimes it is spoken of as many as in the words of the Psalms. Great are the works of the Lord, sought out according to all he wills. Therefore, sometimes the sign must be taken for the will. I answer that. Some things are said of God in their strict sense, others by metaphor, as appears from what has been said before. When certain human passions are predicated of the Godhead metaphorically, this is done because of a likeness in the effect. Hence a thing that is in us a sign of some passion is signified metaphorically in God under the name of that passion. Thus with us it is usual for an angry man to punish, so that punishment becomes an expression of anger. Therefore, punishment itself is signified by the word anger when anger is attributed to God. In the same way, what is usually with us an expression of will is sometimes metaphorically called will in God, just as when anyone lays down a precept, it is a sign that he wishes that precept obeyed. Hence, a divine precept is sometimes called by metaphor the will of God, as in the words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is, however, this difference between will and anger, that anger is never attributed to God properly, since in its primary meaning it includes passion, whereas will is attributed to him properly. Therefore, in God there are distinguished will in its proper sense and will as attributed to him by metaphor. Will in its proper sense is called the will of good pleasure, and will, metaphorically taken, is the will of expression inasmuch as the sign itself of will is called will reply to objection one knowledge is not the cause of a thing being done unless through the will for we do not put into act what we know unless we will to do so accordingly expression is not attributed to knowledge but to will reply to objection to expressions of will are called divine wills not as being signs that god wills anything but because what in us is the usual expression of our will is called the divine will in God. Thus punishment is not a sign that there is anger in God, but it is called anger in him from the fact that it is an expression of anger in ourselves. Twelfth article, whether five expressions of will are rightly assigned to the divine will. Objection 1. It seems that five expressions of will Namely, prohibition, precept, counsel, operation, and permission are not rightly assigned to the divine will, for the same things that God bids us to do by his precept or counsel, these he sometimes operates in us, and the same things that he prohibits, these he sometimes permits. They ought not, therefore, to be enumerated as distinct." objection to further god works nothing unless he wills it as the scripture says but the will of expression is distinct from the will of good pleasure therefore operation ought not to be comprehended in the will of expression objection three further operation and permission appertain to all creatures in common since god works in them all and permits some action in them all but precept, counsel, and prohibition belong to rational creatures only. Therefore they do not come rightly under one division, not being of one order. Objection 4. Further evil happens in more ways than good, since good happens in one way, but evil in all kinds of ways, as declared by the philosopher. It is not right, therefore, to assign one expression only in the case of evil, namely prohibition, and two, namely counsel and precept, in the case of good. I answer that by these signs we name the expression of will by which we are accustomed to show that we will something. A man may show that he wills something either by himself or by means of another. He may show it by himself by doing something either directly or indirectly and accidentally. He shows it directly when he works in his own person. In that way, the expression of his will is his own working He shows it indirectly by not hindering the doing of a thing, for what removes an impediment is called an accidental mover. In this respect, the expression is called permission. He declares his will by means of another when he orders another to perform a work either by insisting upon it as necessary by precept and by prohibiting its contrary, or by persuasion, which is a part of counsel." Since in these ways the will of man makes itself known, the same five are sometimes denominated with regard to the divine will as the expression of that will. That precept, counsel, and prohibition are called the will of God is clear from the words of Matthew, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That permission and operation are called the will of God is clear from Augustine, who says nothing is done unless the Almighty wills it to be done, either by permitting it or actually doing it. Or it may be said that permission and operation refer to present time, permission being with respect to evil, operation with regard to good. Whilst as to future time, prohibition is in respect to evil, precept to good that is necessary, and counsel to good that is of supererogation. Reply to objection one. There is nothing to prevent anyone declaring his will about the same matter in different ways. Thus we find many words that mean the same thing. Hence there is no reason why the same thing should not be the subject of precept operation and counsel or of prohibition or permission. Reply to Objection 2 As God may, by metaphor, be said to will what by his will, properly speaking, he wills not, so he may by metaphor be said to will what he does properly speaking will hence there is nothing to prevent the same thing being the object of the will of good pleasure and of the will of expression but operation is always the same as the will of good pleasure whilst precept and counsel are not both because the former regards the present and the two latter the future and because the former is of itself the effect of the will the latter its effect as fulfilled by means of another. Reply to Objection 3 Rational creatures are masters of their own acts, and for this reason certain special expressions of the divine will are assigned to their acts, inasmuch as God ordains rational creatures to act voluntarily and of themselves. Other creatures act only as moved by the divine operation— Therefore, only operation and permission are concerned with these. Reply to objection for all evil of sin, though happening in many ways, agrees in being one out of harmony, agrees in being out of harmony with the divine will. Hence, with regard to evil, only one expression is assigned that of prohibition. On the other hand, good stands in various relations to the divine goodness, since there are good deeds without which we cannot attain to the fruition of that goodness, and these are the subject of precept, and there are others by which we attain to it more perfectly, and these are the subject of counsel. Or it may be said that counsel is not only concerned with the obtaining of greater good, but also with the avoiding of lesser evils. The end of question 19. Question 20 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province, Question 20. God's love. We next consider those things that pertain absolutely to the will of God. In the appetitive part of the soul, there are found in ourselves both the passions of the soul, as joy, love, and the like, and the habits of the moral virtues, as justice, fortitude, and the like. Hence, we shall first consider the love of God, and secondly, his justice and mercy. About the first, there are four points of inquiry, whether love exists in God, whether he loves all things, whether he loves one thing more than another, and whether he loves more the better things. First article, whether love exists in God. Objection one, it seems that love does not exist in God. For in God there are no passions. Now love is a passion, therefore love is not in God. Objection two, further love, anger, sorrow, and the like are mutually divided against one another But sorrow and anger are not attributed to God unless by metaphor. Therefore, neither is love attributed to him. Objection 3. Further, Dionysius says, Love is a uniting and binding force, but this cannot take place in God since he is simple. Therefore, love does not exist in God. On the contrary, it is written, God is love. I answer that we must needs assert. That in God there is love, because love is the first movement of the will and of every appetitive faculty. For since the acts of the will and of every appetitive faculty tend towards good and evil as to their proper objects, and since good is essentially and especially the object of the will and the appetite, whereas evil is only the object secondarily and indirectly as opposed to good, it follows, that the acts of the will and appetite that regard good must naturally be prior to those that regard evil. Thus, for instance, joy is prior to sorrow, love to hate, because what exists of itself is always prior to that which exists through another. Hence the intellect is first directed to universal truths. Now, in the second place, to particular and special truths. Now, there are certain acts of the will and appetite that regard good under some special condition, as joy and delight regard good present and possessed, whereas desire and hope regard good not as yet possessed. Love, however, regards good universally, whether possessed or not. Hence, love is naturally the first act of the will and appetite for which reason all the other appetite movements presuppose love as their root and origin. For nobody desires anything nor rejoices in anything except as a good that is loved, nor is anything an object of hate except as opposed to the object of love. Similarly, it is clear that sorrow and other things like to it must be referred to love as to their first principle. Hence, in whomsoever there is will and appetite, there must also be love, since if the first is wanting, all that follows is also wanting. Now it has been shown that will is in God, and hence we must attribute love to him. Reply to Objection 1. The cognitive faculty does not move except through the medium of the appetitive And just as in ourselves the universal reason moves through the medium of the particular reason, as stated in De Anima, so in ourselves the intellectual appetite, or the will, as it is called, moves through the medium of the sensitive appetite. Hence in us the sensitive appetite is the proximate motive force of our bodies, Some bodily change, therefore, always accompanies an act of the sensitive appetite, and this change affects especially the heart, which, as the philosopher says, is the first principle of movement in animals. Therefore, acts of the sensitive appetite, inasmuch as they have annexed to them some bodily change, are called passions, whereas acts of the will are not so called. Love, therefore, and joy and delight are passions in so far as they denote acts of the intellective appetite. They are not passions. It is in this latter sense that they are in God. Hence, the philosopher says God rejoices by an operation that is one and simple. For the same reason, he loves without passion. Reply to objection two. In the passions of the sensitive appetite, there may be distinguished a certain material element namely the bodily change and a certain formal element which is on the part of the appetite thus in anger as the philosopher says the material element is the kindling of the blood about the heart but the formal the appetite for revenge again as regards the formal element of certain passions a certain imperfection is implied as in desire which is of the good that we have not and in sorrow, which is about the evil we have. This applies also to anger, which supposes sorrow. Certain other passions, however, as love and joy, imply no imperfection, since therefore none of these can be attributed to God on their material side, as has been said, neither can those that even on their formal side imply imperfection be attributed to him except metaphorically and from likeness of effects as already shown whereas those that do not imply imperfection, such as love and joy, can be properly predicated of God, though without attributing passion to him, as said before. Reply to Objection 3. An act of love always tends towards two things, to the good that one wills and to the person for whom one wills it, since to love a person is to wish that person good. Hence, inasmuch as we love ourselves, we wish ourselves good, and, so far as possible, union with that good. So love is called the unitive force, even in God, without implying composition, for the good that he wills for himself is no other than himself, who is good by his essence, as above shown. And by the fact that anyone loves another, he wills good to that other. Thus he puts the other, as it were, in the place of himself and regards the good done to him as done to himself. So far, love is a binding force since it aggregates another to ourselves and refers his good to our own. And then again, the divine love is a binding force inasmuch as God wills good to others, yet it implies no composition in God. Second article, Whether God Loves All Things Objection 1. It seems that God does not love all things, for according to Dionysius, love places the lover outside himself and causes him to pass, as it were, into the object of his love. But it is not admissible to say that God is placed outside of himself and passes into other things. Therefore, it is inadmissible to say that God loves things other than himself. Objection 2. Further, the love of God is eternal, but things apart from God are not from eternity except in God. Therefore God does not love anything except as it exists in Himself. But as existing in Him, it is no other than Himself. Therefore God does not love things other than Himself. Objection 3. Further, love is twofold, the love namely of desire and the love of friendship. Now, God does not love irrational creatures with a love of desire, since he needs no creature outside himself, nor with a love of friendship, since there can be no friendship with irrational creatures, as the philosopher shows. Therefore, God does not love all things. Objection 4. Further, it is written, Thou hatest all the workers of iniquity. Now, nothing is at the same time hated and loved. Therefore, God does not love all things on the contrary it is said thou lovest all things that are and hatest none of the things which thou hast made i answer that god loves all existing things for all existing things and so far as they exist are good since the existence of a thing is itself a good and likewise whatever perfection it possesses now it has been shown above that god's will is the cause of all things It must needs be, therefore, that a thing has existence or any kind of good only inasmuch as it is willed by God. To every existing thing, then, God wills some good. Hence, since to love anything is nothing else than to will good to that thing, it is manifest that God loves everything that exists, yet not as we love. Because since our will is not the cause of the goodness of things, but is moved by it as by its object— Our love, whereby we will good to anything, is not the cause of its goodness, but conversely its goodness, whether real or imaginary, calls forth our love, by which we will that it should preserve the good it has and receive besides the good it has not, and to this end we direct our actions, whereas the love of God infuses and creates goodness." Reply to objection two. One, a lover is placed outside himself and made to pass into the object of his love in as much as he wills good to the beloved and works for that good by his providence, even as he works for his own. Hence Dionysius says, on behalf of the truth, we must make bold to say even this, that he himself. The cause of all things, by his abounding love and goodness, is placed outside himself by his providence for all existing things. Reply to objection to, although creatures have not existed from eternity except in God, yet because they have been in him from eternity, God has known them eternally in their proper natures, and for that reason has loved them, even as we, by the images of things within us, know things existing in themselves. Mm -hmm. Reply to Objection 3. Friendship cannot exist except towards rational creatures who are capable of returning love and communicating one with another in the various works of life, who may fare well, or ill, according to the changes of fortune and happiness, even as to them is benevolence, properly speaking, exercised. But irrational creatures cannot attain to loving God, nor to any share in the intellectual and beatific life that he lives. Strictly speaking, therefore, God does not love irrational creatures with the love of friendship, but, as it were, with the love of desire, in so far as he orders them to rational creatures and even to himself. Yet this is not because he stands in need of them, but only on account of his goodness and of the services they render to us. For we can desire a thing for others as well as for ourselves. Reply to Objection 4. Nothing prevents one and the same thing being loved under one aspect while it is hated under another. God loves sinners in so far as they are existing natures, for they have existence and have it from him. In so far as they are sinners, they have not existence at all, but fall short of it, and this in them is not from God. Hence, under this aspect, they are hated by him. Third article, whether God loves all things equally. Objection one. It seems that God loves all things equally, for it is said, He hath equally care of all but god's providence over things comes from the love wherewith he loves them therefore he loves all things equally objection to further the love of god is his essence but god's essence does not admit of degree neither therefore does his love he does not therefore love some things more than others objection three further as god's love extends to created things so do his knowledge and will extend but god is not said to know some things more than others nor will one thing more than another neither therefore does he love some things more than others on the contrary augustine says God loves all things that he has made, and amongst them rational creatures more, and of these especially those who are members of his only begotten Son himself. I answer that since to love a thing is to will its good, in a twofold way anything may be loved more or less, in one way on the part of the act of the will itself, which is more or less intense, In this way, God does not love some things more than others because he loves all things by an act of the will that is one simple and always the same. In another way, on the part of the good itself that a person wills for the beloved In this way, we are said to love that one more than another for whom we will a greater good, though our will is not more intense. In this way, we must needs say that God loves some things more than others. For since God's love is the cause of goodness in things, as has been said, no one thing would be better than another if God did not will greater good for one than for another. Reply to Objection 1. God is said to have equally care of all, not because by his care he deals out equal good to all, but because he administers all things with the like wisdom and goodness. Reply to Objection 2. This argument is based on the intensity of love on the part of the act of the will which is the divine essence. But the good that God wills for his creatures is not the divine essence, therefore there is no reason why it may not vary in degree. Reply to Objection 3. To understand and to will denote the act alone and do not include in their meaning objects from the diversity of which God may be said to know or will more or less, as has been said with respect to God's love. FOURTH ARTICLE, WHETHER GOD ALWAYS LOVES MORE THE BETTER THINGS OBJECTION 1. IT SEEMS THAT GOD DOES NOT ALWAYS LOVE MORE THE BETTER THINGS, FOR IT IS MANIFESTED CHRIST IS BETTER THAN THE WHOLE HUMAN RACE, BEING GOD AND MAN. BUT GOD LOVED THE HUMAN RACE MORE THAN HE LOVED CHRIST, FOR IT IS SAID HE SPARED NOT HIS OWN SON, BUT DELIVERED HIM UP FOR US ALL. THEREFORE GOD DOES NOT ALWAYS LOVE MORE THE BETTER THINGS. OBJECTION 2. FURTHER, AN ANGEL IS BETTER THAN A MAN. Hence it is said of man, Thou hast made him a little less than the angels. But God loved men more than he loved the angels. For it is said, Nowhere doth he take hold of the angels, but of the seed of Abraham he taketh hold. Therefore God does not always love more the better things. Objection 3. Further, Peter was better than John, since he loved Christ more. Hence the Lord, knowing this to be true, asked Peter, saying, Simon, son of John, Lovest thou me more than these? Yet Christ loved John more than he loved Peter. For as Augustine says, commenting on the words, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? By this very mark is John distinguished from the other disciples. Not that he loved him only, but that he loved him more than the rest. Therefore God does not always love more the better things. Objection 4. Further, The innocent man is better than the repentant, since repentance is, as Jerome says, a second plank after shipwreck. But God loves the penitent more than the innocent, since he rejoices over him the more. For it is said, I say to you that there shall be joy in heaven upon the one sinner that doth penance more than upon ninety-nine just who need not penance. Therefore God does not always love more the better things objection five further the just man who is foreknown is better than the predestined sinner now god loves more the predestined sinner since he wills for him a greater good life eternal therefore god does not always love more the better things Mm -hmm. on the contrary everything loves what is like it as appears from ecclesiasticus every beast loveth its like Now the better a thing is, the more like it is to God. Therefore the better things are more loved by God. I answer, it must needs be, according to what has been said before, that God loves more the better things. For it has been shown that God's loving one thing more than another is nothing else than his willing for that thing a greater good, because because God's will is the cause of goodness in things, and the reason why some things are better than others is that God wills for them a greater good, hence it follows that he loves more the better things. Reply to Objection 1. God loves Christ not only more than he loves the whole human race, but more than he loves the entire created universe, because he willed for him the greater good in giving him a name that is above all names, in so far as he was true God. Nor did anything of his excellence diminish when God delivered him up to death for the salvation of the human race, but rather did he become thereby a glorious conqueror. The government was placed upon his shoulder according to Isaiah. Reply to Objection 2. God loves the human nature assumed by the word of God in the person of Christ more than he loves all the angels, for that nature is better, especially on the ground of the union with the Godhead. But speaking of human nature in general and comparing it with the angelic, the two are found equal in the order of grace and of glory, since according to Revelation, The measure of a man and of an angel is the same, yet so that in this respect some angels are found nobler than some men, and some men nobler than some angels. But as to natural condition, an angel is better than a man. God, therefore, did not assume human nature because he loved man, absolutely speaking, more, but because the needs of man were greater." just as the master of a house may give some costly delicacy to a sick servant that he does not give to his own son in sound health. Reply to Objection 3. This doubt concerning Peter and John has been solved in various ways. Augustine interprets it mystically and says that the active life signified by Peter loves God more than the contemplative signified by John because the former is more conscious of the miseries of this present life and therefore the more ardently desires to be freed from them and depart to God God he says loves more the contemplative life since he preserves it longer for it does not end as the active life does with the life of the body some say that Peter loved Christ more in his members, and therefore was loved more by Christ also, for which reason he gave him the care of the church, but that John loved Christ more in himself, and so was loved more by him, on which account Christ commended his mother to his care. Others say that it is uncertain which of them loved Christ more with the love of charity, and uncertain also which of them God loved more and ordained to a greater degree of glory and eternal life. Peter is said to have loved more in regard to a certain promptness and fervor, but John to have been more loved with respect to certain marks of familiarity which Christ showed to him rather than to others on account of his youth and purity. While others say that Christ loved Peter more from his more excellent gift of charity, but John more for his gifts of intellect. Hence, absolutely speaking, Peter was the better and more beloved, but in a certain sense John was the better and was loved the more, However, it may seem presumptuous to pass judgment on these matters, since the Lord and no other is the weigher of spirits. REPLY TO OBJECTION 4 The penitent and the innocent are related as exceeding and exceeded. For whether innocent or penitent, those are the better and better loved who have most Grace other things being equal. Innocence is the more nobler thing and the more beloved. God is said to rejoice more over the penitent than over the innocent because often penitents rise from sin more cautious, humble, and fervent. Hence Gregory, commenting on these words, says that in battle the general loves the soldier who after flight returns and bravely pursues the enemy more than him who has never fled but has never done a brave deed. Or it may be answered that gifts of grace equal in themselves, are more as conferred on the penitent who deserved punishment than as conferred on the innocent to whom no punishment was due, just as a hundred pounds are a greater gift to a poor man than to a king. Reply to Objection 5. Since God's will is the cause of goodness in things, the goodness of one who is loved by God is to be reckoned according to the time when some good is to be given to him by divine goodness, According, therefore, to the time when there is to be given by the divine will to the predestined sinner a greater good, the sinner is better. Although, according to some other time, he is the worse, because even according to some time, he is neither good nor bad. The end of question 20. Question 21 of Summa Theologica, pars prima, Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, pars prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the fathers of the English Dominican province, Question 21, the justice and mercy of God. After considering the divine love, we must treat of God's justice and mercy. Under this head, there are four points of inquiry, whether there is justice in God, whether his justice can be called truth, whether there is mercy in God, and whether in every work of God there are justice and mercy. First article, whether there is justice in God objection one it seems that there is not justice in god for justice is divided against temperance but temperance does not exist in god therefore neither does justice objection two: further he who does whatsoever he wills and pleases does not work according to justice but as the apostle says god worketh all things according to the counsel of his will therefore justice cannot be attributed to him Objection 3. Further, the act of justice is to pay what is due, but God is no man's debtor, therefore justice does not belong to God. Objection 4. Further, whatever is in God is his essence, but justice cannot belong to this, for Boethius says, good regards the essence, justice the act, therefore justice does not belong to God. On the contrary, it is said The Lord is just and hath loved justice. I answer that there are two kinds of justice. The one consists in mutual giving and receiving, as in buying and selling and other kinds of intercourse and exchange. This the philosopher calls commutative justice that directs exchange and intercourse of business. This does not belong to God, since as the apostle says, Who hath first given to him, and recompense shall be made him? The other consists in distribution and is called distributive justice, whereby a ruler or a steward gives to each what his rank deserves. As then the proper order displayed in ruling a family or any kind of multitude evinces justice of this kind in the ruler, so the order of the universe, which is seen both in effects of nature and in effects of will, shows forth the justice of God. Hence, Dionysius says, we must need see that God is truly just in seeing how he gives to all existing things what is proper to the condition of each and preserves the nature of each in the order and with the powers that properly belong to it. Reply to Objection 1. Certain of the moral virtues are concerned with the passions as temperance with concupiscence, fortitude with fear and daring, meekness with anger, Such virtues as these can only metaphorically be attributed to God, since, as stated above, in God there are no passions nor a sensitive appetite, which is, as the philosopher says, the subject of those virtues. On the other hand, certain moral virtues are concerned with works of giving and expending, such as justice, liberality, and magnificence, and these reside not in the sensitive faculty, but in the will. Hence there is nothing to prevent our attributing these virtues to God, although not in civil matters, but in such acts as are not unbecoming to him, for, as the philosopher says, it would be absurd to praise God for his political virtues. Reply to objection to, since good, as perceived by the intellect, is the object of the will, It is impossible for God to will anything but what his wisdom approves. This is, as it were, his law of justice, in accordance with which his will is right and just. Hence, what he does according to his will, he does justly, as we do justly what we do according to law. But whereas law comes to us from some higher power, God is a law unto himself. Reply to Objection 3. To each one is due what is his own. Now that which is directed to a man is said to be his own. Thus the master owns the servant, and not conversely, for that is free, which is its own cause. In the word debt, therefore, is implied a certain exigence or necessity of the thing to which it is directed. Now a twofold order has to be considered in things. The one whereby one created thing is directed to another as the parts of the whole accident to substance and all things whatsoever to their end. The other whereby all created things are ordered to God. Thus, in the divine operations, debt may be regarded in two ways as due either to God or to creatures, and in either way God pays what is due. It is due to God that there should be fulfilled in creatures what his will and wisdom require and what manifests his goodness. In this respect, God's justice regards what befits him, inasmuch as he renders to himself what is due to himself. It is also due to a created thing that it should possess what is ordered to it. Thus, it is due to a man to have hands and that other animals should serve him. Thus also God exercises justice when he gives to each thing what is due to it by its nature and condition. This debt, however, is derived from the former, since what is due to each thing is due to it as ordered to its, according to the divine wisdom. And although God in this way pays each thing its due, yet he himself is not the debtor, since he is not directed to other things, but rather other things to him. Justice, therefore, in God is sometimes spoken of as the fitting accompaniment of his goodness, sometimes as the reward of merit, and some touches on either view when he says, When thou dost punish the wicked, it is just, since it agrees with their deserts. And when thou dost spare the wicked, it is also just, since it befits thy goodness. Reply to Objection 4. Although justice regards act, this does not prevent its being the essence of God, since even that which is of the essence of a thing may be the principle of action. But good does not always regard act, since a thing is called good not merely with respect to act, but also as regards perfection in its essence. For this reason it is said that the good is related to the just as the general to the special." second article whether the justice of god is truth objection one it seems that the justice of god is not truth for justice resides in the will since as anselm says it is a rectitude of the will where as truth resides in the intellect as the philosopher says therefore justice does not appertain to truth objection to further according to the philosopher truth is a virtue distinct from justice truth therefore does not appertain to the idea of justice on the contrary it is said mercy and truth have met each other where truth stands for justice i answer that truth consists in the equation of mind and thing as said above now the mind that is the cause of the thing is related to it as its rule and measure, whereas the converse is the case with the mind that receives its knowledge from things. When, therefore, things are the measure and rule of the mind, truth consists in the equation of the mind to the thing as happens in ourselves. For according as a thing is or is not, our thoughts or our words about it are true or false. But when the mind is the rule or measure of things, truth consists in the equation of the thing to the mind, just as the work of an artist is said to be true when it is in accordance with his art. Now, as works of art are related to art, so are works of justice related to the law with which they accord. Therefore, God's justice, which establishes things in the order conformable to the rule of his wisdom, which is the law of his justice, is suitably called truth. Thus we also in human affairs speak of the truth of justice." REPLY TO OBJECTION 1. JUSTICE, AS TO THE LAW THAT GOVERNS, RESIDES IN THE REASON OR INTELLECT, BUT AS TO THE COMMAND WHEREBY OUR ACTIONS ARE GOVERNED ACCORDING TO THE LAW, IT RESIDES IN THE WILL. REPLY TO OBJECTION 2. THE TRUTH OF WHICH THE PHILOSOPHER IS SPEAKING IN THIS PASSAGE IS THAT VIRTUE WHEREBY A MAN SHOWS HIMSELF IN WORD AND DEED SUCH AS HE REALLY IS. Thus it consists in the conformity of the sign with the thing signified and not in that of the effect with its cause and rule, as has been said regarding the truth of justice. Third article, whether mercy can be attributed to God. Objection one, it seems that mercy cannot be attributed to God, for mercy is a kind of sorrow, as Damascene says, but there is no sorrow in God and therefore there is no mercy in him. Objection 2. Further, mercy is a relaxation of justice, but God cannot remit what appertains to his justice, for it is said, If we believe not, he continueth faithful, he cannot deny himself, but he would deny himself, as a gloss says, if he should deny his words. Therefore mercy is not becoming to God. On the contrary, it is said, He is a merciful and gracious Lord. I answer, I answer, That mercy is especially to be attributed to God as seen in its effect, but not as an affection of passion, in proof of which it must be considered that a person is said to be merciful as being, so to speak, sorrowful at heart, being affected with sorrows at the misery of another as though it were his own. Hence it follows that he endeavors to dispel the misery of this other as if it were his, and this is the effect of mercy." To sorrow, therefore, over the misery of others belongs not to God, but it does most properly belong to Him to dispel that misery, whatever be the defect we call by that name. Now defects are not removed except by the perfection of some kind of goodness, and the primary source of goodness is God, as shown above. It must, however, be considered that to bestow perfections appertains not only to the divine goodness, but also to his justice, liberality, and mercy, yet under different aspects. The communicating of perfections absolutely considered appertains to goodness, as shown above. Insofar as perfections are given to things in proportion, the bestowal of them belongs to justice, as has been already said. In so far as God does not bestow them for His own use, but only on account of His goodness, it belongs to liberality. In so far as perfections given to things by God expel defects, it belongs to mercy. Reply to objection one: The argument is based on mercy regarded as an affection of passion. Reply to objection two. God acts mercifully, not indeed by going against his justice, but by doing something more than justice. Thus a man who pays another 200 pieces of money, though owing him only 100, does nothing against justice, but acts liberally or mercifully. The case is the same with one who pardons an offense committed against him, for in remitting it he may be said to bestow a gift. Hence the apostle calls remission a forgiving Forgive one another, as Christ has forgiven you. Hence it is clear that mercy does not destroy justice, but in a sense is the fullness thereof. And thus it is said, Mercy exalteth itself above judgment. Fourth article, Whether in every work of God there are mercy and justice. Objection one. It seems that not in every work of God are mercy and justice, For some works of God are attributed to mercy, as a justification of the ungodly, and others to justice, as the damnation of the wicked. Hence it is said, Judgment without mercy to him that hath not done mercy. Therefore not in every work of God do mercy and justice appear objection two further the apostle attributes the conversion of the jews to justice and truth but that of the gentiles to mercy therefore not in every work of god are justice and mercy objection three further many just persons are afflicted in this world which is unjust therefore not in every work of god are justice and mercy objection four further it is the part of justice to pay what is due but of mercy to relieve misery Thus both justice and mercy presuppose something in their works, whereas creation presupposes nothing. Therefore in creation neither mercy nor justice is found. On the contrary, it is said, All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. I answer that mercy and truth are necessarily found in all God's works, if mercy be taken to mean the removal of any kind of defect, Not every defect, however, can properly be called a misery, but only defect in a rational nature whose lot is to be happy, for misery is opposed to happiness. For this necessity there is a reason, because since a debt paid according to the divine justice is one due either to God or to some creature, neither the one nor the other can be lacking in any work of God because God can do nothing that is not in accord with his wisdom and goodness, and it is in this sense, as we have said, that anything is due to God. Likewise, whatever is done by him in created things is done according to proper order and proportion wherein consists the idea of justice. Thus justice must exist in all God's works. Now the work of divine justice always presupposes the work of mercy and is founded thereupon for nothing is due to creatures except for something pre-existing in them or foreknown. Again, if this is due to a creature, it must be due on account of something that precedes. And since we cannot go on to infinity, we must come to something that depends only on the goodness of the divine will, which is the ultimate end. We may say, for instance, that to possess hands is due to man on account of his rational soul, and his rational soul is due to him so that he may be man, And as being man is on account of the divine goodness, so in every work of God viewed at its primary source there appears mercy. In all that follows, the power of mercy remains and works indeed with even greater force, as the influence of the first cause is more intense than that of second causes." For this reason does God, out of abundance of his goodness, bestow upon creatures what is due to them more bountifully than is proportionate to their deserts? since less would suffice for preserving the order of justice than what the divine goodness confers, because between creatures and God's goodness there can be no proportion. Reply to Objection 1. Certain works are attributed to justice and certain others to mercy because in some justice appears more forcibly and in others mercy. Even in the damnation of the reprobate, mercy is seen, which, though it does not totally remit, yet somewhat alleviates in punishing short of what is deserved. In the justification of the ungodly, justice is seen when God remits sins on account of love, though he himself has mercifully infused that love. So we read of Magdalene. Many sins are forgiven her because she hath loved much. Reply to Objection 2. God's justice and mercy appear both in the conversion of the Jews and of the Gentiles, but an aspect of justice appears in the conversion of the Jews which is not seen in the conversion of the Gentiles inasmuch as the Jews were saved on account of the promises made to the fathers. Reply to Objection 3. Justice and mercy appear in the punishment of the just in this world, since by afflictions lesser faults are cleansed in them, and they are the more raised up from earthly affections to God. As to this, Gregory says, the evils that press upon us in this world force us to go to God. Reply to Objection 4. Although creation presupposes nothing in the universe, yet it does presuppose something in the knowledge of God. In this way, too, the idea of justice is preserved in creation by the production of beings in a manner that accords with the divine wisdom and goodness, and the idea of mercy also is preserved in the change of creatures from non-existence to existence. The End of Question 21